If you've been following along from the start, congratulations. After today, you'll have made it through the entirety of Genesis with us, the first book of Torah. This last reading, Parsha Vayechi, is all about looking back and taking stock of what's come before. We find Jacob, Joseph's father, on his deathbed, surrounded by his children and grandchildren as he reviews what's transpired and doles out blessings before he dies at the close of this chapter. It doesn't escape me that this Parsha coincides with the end of one year and the beginning of the next. And considering all that's transpired in 2020, there's plenty to look back on as this year comes to a close. Rehashing the past can be difficult work. I know that, like many others, I'm ready to just leave this year behind me. I'm ready to stop thinking about elections for a second and focus on what work the future needs. I'm ready for the vaccine that will hopefully put some kind of end to this monstrous virus that's radically reshaped society and taken so many people from us. I'm ready to see my friends again, sit at dinner parties, watch movies in the theaters, go to concerts, and let 2020 just wash away. But at the same time, I'm aware that the past doesn't magically disappear, and that everything I've experienced up until this point makes me who I am. The past is me, is us. So we can't simply leave it behind, nor should we. We have to wrestle with it to bend our future selves and future society towards the values we hold dear and aspire to, especially in the wake of 2020. But looking backwards isn't only useful and necessary in order to change our future. It can be comforting. I'm sure I'm not alone in having used nostalgia as a coping mechanism this year. Many times my friends and I have recounted the last night we saw each other at a bar days before Los Angeles went into lockdown, playing records at footsies until the wee hours of the morning. That memory brings me not only comfort, but hope. So when I think of nostalgia as a salve, I wonder what memories from this year I'll bring along to the next, with the knowledge that some will inspire calm, some anxiety, and all the other feelings and emotions on the spectrum. In the Jewish tradition, when someone dies, there's a saying, Zichrona Livracha, may their memory be a blessing. When I think about Jacob giving out blessings before he passes away, I'm reminded that the memory of our loved ones are in themselves blessings. And I think that's beautiful. It's also, I think, a helpful thing to remember in a year full of so much loss, that memories can bestow us with divinity. Not God, not angels or rabbis or priests, but memories of our parents and grandparents, our family and friends, that's a sacred comfort. So for anyone listening who has lost someone this year, may their memory be a blessing for you. To help unpack the theme of looking back in order to move forward, today's guest, whether he knows it or not, 
has spent much of his career focusing on themes of retribution and being haunted by the past. Doug Petrie has written and produced many of our favorite TV shows, from Buffy the Vampire Slayer to Pushing Daisies, American Horror Story, Marvel's Daredevil, and more. Doug converted to Judaism later in life, as he'll explain, and we'll discuss what it meant to him to have a bar mitzvah at 50 years old. We'll discuss what it means to read between the lines in Torah and why exploring our past is a necessary aspect of building our future. As we close out Genesis and this insane year, I invite us to take a tip from Torah. We have an opportunity and a reminder to meditate on what we've been given, what's been taken, and how it's made us who we are. There are many chapters ahead of us, and the more we take stock of where we've been, the more wisdom the future has to offer. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Raviv Ullman, and welcome to the study. Well, it would be impossible to list all of the shows and specific episodes that make me such a fan of yours, but suffice it to say, I'm just so excited to welcome you to the show, Doug. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Before we get into this week's Parsha, could you introduce yourself by telling us just a little bit about your relationship to spirituality or religion, uh, maybe growing up versus now? Oh, boy. Uh, Yeah, you start with a big swing. My name is Douglas Petrie. My relationship to spirituality started when I was very young. I grew up in the town of Great Neck, Long Island. We, the Petries, were one of the few Catholic families in what was then uh, an almost entirely Jewish neighborhood. And I grew up surrounded by Judaism, also surrounded by uh, Catholicism, and uh, always had a lot of big, deep questions about it, and always felt kind of you know, like I had my, my, my nose pressed to the glass of Judaism. I was always like, that looks good to me. As I grew older, that became more apparent and more important. And I've always loved discussing theology and stories and mythology. And is this meaningful? Is this true? Is this, does it matter if it's true? What is this about? How does this affect us? And about 15 years ago, went to my first meeting with, with Rabbi Sharon Browse. And that's when kind of the, the bell, the bell rang, rung, the bell rang for me, where I was like, okay, this is a place where I could have a home spiritually and engage. And, you know, I can hang my hat here. You know, the whole thing evolves and, and hopefully deepens over time. So that's where I'm at now. How long, Doug, have you been an official member of the tribe? I converted in 2010, so I'm a a 10-year Jew. You get your 10-year Jewish chip. I get my chip. (laughs) I had my bar mitzvah at the age of 50, which I recommend. I don't know why they waste that on on 13-year-olds. That was a big moment. That's where I really felt I'm in. Your bar mitzvah sermon was just slightly better than the typical 13-year-old. Though, I will say at our synagogue, the 13-year-olds give really good b'nai mitzvah sermons. Yours might have had just a a little bit more polish, if I recall. I had more time. (laughs) You know, wisdom comes from all over the place if you're listening, so. As we end Genesis 
with this Parsha, we're at Jacob's deathbed scene, and his allotment of blessings allows us a recap of what's happened up to this point, as well as a forecast as reflected by the content of his blessings for his sons. My own memory of our patriarchs from uh, back when I was getting bar mitzvahed, kind of like the nuance of their ethical successes and failures. I remember them as purely virtuous, which could be due to some combination of both my not paying attention in school and how Torah, like U.S. history, is often whitewashed among certain populations. So with all that in mind, Rabbi Adam, could you give us a recap of this week's portion with maybe a focus on Jacob's moral accounting of his sons? Yeah, so... You know, you set that up beautifully, Raviv, right? This is the last Parsha of the book of Genesis, and it is the closing out of the deeply messed up family narrative that we have been tracking now together for the past few months and the bridge toward the next stage in our people's story. And most of the action, as you say, does take place at Jacob's deathbed. The first thing that happens, the first deathbed scene is Jacob calls in his son Joseph together with his two grandsons, Ephraim and Menasha, and he formally adopts Ephraim and Menasha as two of his own sons. And what that means is, is that in the allotting of the tribes, the 12 tribes that are supposed to associate with the 12 children of Jacob, Joseph actually gets a double portion there because each of his sons gets a tribe for himself. So this ongoing theme week after week of parents giving unequal blessings to their children continues now for a fifth generation because this family seems chronically unable to learn from their mistakes. Then Jacob brings in all of the remaining brothers and proceeds to go through one by one giving this sort of deathbed blessing or proclamation about their true nature, and what will be their future. Some of these are really beautiful. Some of them are opportunities, clearly, for the old man to air family baggage. Particularly, he jumps all up and down on his three oldest children, Reuben, Shimon, and Levi. Each one of their blessings sounds a lot more like a condemnation for an old wrong that they are understood to have done. And uh, by the time he is done delivering all of these proclamations, Jacob is spent and passes away. Then after Jacob dies, the brothers of Joseph get nervous that this is going to be Joseph's opportunity to take long-delayed vengeance on them. And so they all come to him and say, you know, our father would have wanted you to forgive us. Uh, unclear from Jacob's nature whether that's true or not. But Joseph responds back with a really generous, everything that happened to me in my life, from the enslavement and imprisonment to the rising up to high office in Egypt and reconciliation with you, all of this has been the hand of God and I begrudge you nothing, sort of ties up at least that one family feud with a nice bow so we can end that as we move out of Genesis. And then the closing scene of this Parsha is Joseph's death and his burial. 
And the last words of this Parsha, the last words of the book of Genesis are, and Joseph was buried in a coffin in Egypt. And there's something kind of fitting about the fact that the the transition out of Genesis and into Exodus, which is going to be all about our enslavement and this attempted campaign of genocide against us, the sort of ominous foreshadowing to that is this image of a coffin in Egypt. There's going to be a lot more to say about that, but our listeners are going to have to keep downloading past this episode in order to find out what's going on there. Uh, Thank you. I, I think it is worth mentioning here that while we've talked about Jacob's sons, uh, Dina, Jacob's only daughter, doesn't, as far as we can tell, get a blessing. And it feels like maybe this was an opportunity for some healing, especially considering that she's been through some horrible experiences herself. In a way, her rape from a few Parshas ago will be taken to account through some cursing or blessings of how it was handled for certain sons, Levi and Shimon, but she herself isn't considered, which feels at least like some kind of delineation and favoritism based on gender. So I guess, Rabbi Adam, is that just how it was when the Torah was written? Or is there anything else to take from the fact that only the daughter goes without blessing? Well, we're talking about a pretty patriarchal book yeah. from a pretty patriarchal age. And so leaving daughters out of the passing down of blessing, unfortunately, um, this isn't the only instance of that in the Torah. In fact, many times daughters aren't even named or directly referenced. We only seem to talk about the boys. And the Torah also does this with characters, introduces really interesting, juicy characters, gives them a little piece of storyline, and then they vanish abruptly from the story never to be heard from again. I am uh, a huge fan of the writing of Doug Petrie. I'm also a huge fan of the writing of another lesser uh, television writer, Aaron Sorkin, um, who is famous for doing this, introducing characters in the West Wing that all of a sudden uh, just vanished um, from view. Seems like shoddy writing to me, but uh, he's done pretty well. The Bible also does the same thing, introduces a character, and then we don't get to follow up with them. The wonderful thing is, is that even though the Torah doesn't follow up on these characters, we have this tradition of Midrash, this tradition of rabbinic legend making, which often picks up with characters who get left behind by the Torah's story and weaves for them a new narrative, fills in some of the gaps of what might happen to them later on. I'm not actually familiar with much historic Midrash about picking up Dina's story, though Famously, there's a modern midrash, the best-selling novel, The Red Tent by Anita Diamant, that picks up Dina's story and retells who she winds up becoming. Um, And it's really a beautiful, beautiful book in the tradition of these rabbis and their, uh, their weaving of legend. But there are plenty of other characters who will get a second life in the writing of the rabbi, rabbis and in conversations like this one. So it's kind of our responsibility to, to, to fill in the gaps, as it were. Yeah, it, well, it beca- it's our, our invitation. Hmm. When the narrative leaves a hole, we can either just say, well, we don't know whatever became of that person, or we're invited to hop in and imagine out a, a possible storyline 
as a way of of exploring that character and exploring the bigger context. The the story just because it's written isn't done. Mm-hmm. One of the beautiful images that comes to us from the world of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism, is this insight that on the parchment there are black letters and surrounding the black letters there are white spaces and the vast majority of the Torah is in the white spaces rather than the black letters. Hmm. Um, Sort of like in conversation, psychologists will tell you that only a very small percentage of what we communicate when we're talking to one another actually comes in the words that we say to each other. And the vast majority of the communication is in gesture and in pause and in the energy that we bring to the conversation. So too, there are all sorts of characters and plot lines hiding in the white spaces. And, uh, and that's, that's, I think, what we're doing here. I'm in. This Parsha is about looking back to figure out how we deal with the past. Doug, as a prolific TV writer, you've woven many nuanced tales of retrospection, whether in Buffy, Daredevil, Pushing Daisies, amongst others. What about that act of looking back is so fascinating to you? Why have you focused so much of your time writing that? Even now on your own time, you're making, among other things, short films about end-of-life meditations and, and what can be passed along. When the past returns whether through rumination or circumstance. It's almost always bad news. You know, I I don't know many examples of something returns from your past and, and now you are made whole again, or your life gets better. You know, it's, it's usually revenge or ghost stories or something that you left behind that um, once retribution or once the scales balanced that when something from the past returns to you at least in most stories that i'm thinking of off the top of my head it's it's somebody knocking on the door a ghost of some kind whether it's consequences of your actions or literally a ghost or just a memory it's something from the past saying hey you forgot about me and i'm not cool with that and usually the character is on the precipice of something good happening or some change. And it's like the past comes and says, hey, remember me? Uh-uh. You're not, you're not moving forward until we get this stuff settled. And do you find that those themes are something that drives you in your writing? Like, is that something that you see as a pattern in your projects? I didn't really until you until you mentioned it. I see it as a pattern in my life. I think the past is always with me, I think that and with us. And I, I think the trick is to um is not to not to not to fear it and not to send it away and also not to, you know, fall into nostalgia or you know, I love in Harry Potter, the mirror of Erised, which is desire written backwards. And you look in it and you see the past that you wish you had, you know, and Harry looks at it and he sees that his parents are still alive. And it's wonderful. And, he, you know, it's a secret thing. And he, he, he goes away and he comes back the next night and he does it again. He goes back the next night and he does it again. And Dumbledore shows up and he goes, dude, 
I know that mirror is really comforting, but you shouldn't be coming here every night. You got to <laughs> let this go. Actually, yeah, it is kind of a theme. <laughs> now that you bring it up, uh, I think with a lot of writing, you don't, you don't know what you're writing when you're writing it, you know, and I think it's better that way because then you can let all the ghosts come out. Yeah, reconciling your past and getting comfortable with it so that you can live in your present and you can, and you can move forward is, um, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's the work. I'm just thinking about the ways in which the biblical characters get more complex and more round as the story arc unfolds. Like Abraham, Abraham has no backstory when he gets called. We talked about that a bunch of weeks ago. He gets called out of the blue and he goes and he gives us very, very little insight into his inner world, even when he's asked to do something as impossible as sacrificing his son. By the time we get to Joseph, so the end of the patriarchal matriarchal narratives, Joseph has a much more intense inner life. He's got a backstory. He has a childhood. He has a complex psychological relationship with parents and with siblings. He cries a lot. Uh, he keeps retreating from the narrative over the past few Parshas to cry, and he cries in this Parsha as well. He, he's more emotionally alive and rich. And then we're going to move into Exodus. And for the next four books of the Torah, we're going to have this character of Moses, who is incredibly rich and nuanced and psychologically deep. There's a move from these characters who they do have a past, but we don't know it, to these characters who are much more informed by where they come from and who carry ghosts. Moses is going to try to run away from his time in the Egyptian palace until God's going to tap him on the shoulder at the burning bush and say essentially what, Doug, you were saying. Like, you have a debt which needs to be paid. You have work that needs to do and you can't hide out here forever. Just There seems to be a trajectory toward more sophisticated storytelling and... And maybe the mark of that is the greater frequency of the appearance of these characters' pasts. It's kind of like life. When you're a kid, you don't have a backstory. You're, you're forming your backstory, you know? You, you, it's not like, oh, my parents screwed me up when I was a kid. You're still a kid. <laughs> you're getting screwed up. Yes, they're still, it's, it's happening. It's on. It's only later when you get to catch your breath and look back and why am I here doing this? Or why do I have such good fortune? Or why do I repeat these mistakes? And you start to look back to get an answer to the talking head song, the David Burns, you know, how did I get here? You know, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful life. How did I get here? And it's inevitable that you'll ask yourself, how did I get here? And the only answer is in your own footsteps. So you have to look back. Doug, thank you so much for joining us and helping us finish the book of Genesis. Thank you. Thank you both. Shabbat Shalom to everyone out there. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself... <laughs>
automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? These next few episodes, we have incredible guests lined up who will help us understand some of the incredible themes we're about to face in Exodus. Liberation, leadership, magic, it's all on its way. If you've been enjoying this journey so far, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show. Better yet, spread the word and tell a friend. We'd love to hear your feedback and thoughts on all things Torah study on our Twitter page, at study underscore show. The study is produced by Evan Scott Nicholas and me, Raviv Ullman. My co-host is Rabbi Adam Greenwald. Our guest today was Douglas Petrie. Artwork by Julia Pott. Happy New Year, and we'll see you next week.